Well, let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray for help. Many of us believe and we would pray, help our unbelief. And some of us, Father, don't believe and we pray for them that you would give them sight. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we often say seeing is believing. Our eyes see what they see. They can't deny it. But what is it about us that often demands seeing before believing? Is that a problem? Well, not always. Not until your problem requires faith. And in a world full of trials, how can we make decisions today without knowing the future? Or what happens if you never let yourself trust anyone? Most importantly, what does it mean for our relationship with God who is unseen? The Bible doesn't deny that seeing is believing. But it also says hearing is believing. In fact, when the source is trustworthy, hearing is more prized than seeing, at least in Scripture. And that should be good news for all of us. But it's only good news if your heart's in the right place. And that's the issue in our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 43. John 4, 43. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 945. 945. And if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. The smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Now, as you're turning there for context, in chapter 1, John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the one that God promised would come and deliver his people and reign over them forever as king. And so when Jesus shows up, John's disciples start following Jesus. And they, too, testify that Jesus is the Messiah. Then in chapter 2, Jesus demonstrates that truth with miracles And beginning in chapter 3, he explains how people can see the kingdom of God. That is how they may enter into eternal life. He says that they must be changed by the Spirit and put their faith in God's one and only Son. And whosoever believes in him has eternal life. And that truth is on full display in chapter 4 when Jesus is in Samaria. That's an area considered to be spiritually inferior to Jerusalem in the south. Because these people were a mixed race of people with a mixed religion. And yet, Jesus speaks to a sexually broken and immoral woman about the gracious gift of God, and a whole Samaritan town believes in him. But in our passage today, Jesus is hitting further north. He's gone, down, gone from Judea in the south, where Jerusalem is, to Samaria, now back into his Jewish home country of Galilee, 
And he receives a different sort of welcome. One that teaches us about how to live with God-glorifying faith. And here's the lesson. Take Jesus at his word and fully trust him. Take Jesus at his word and fully trust him. Now, before we go any further, I want to be clear. I don't think that faith throws reason under the bus or just throws reason out the window. But there's a problem in us if the source is trustworthy and we're unwilling to believe it unless we see it. So as we read this passage and examine ourselves, there are two main exhortations from the text that will help us glorify God with genuine faith. First, don't be shallow with Jesus. This is in verses 43 through, 50, or through 45. Don't be shallow with Jesus. Second, take him at his word. 46 through 54. In fact, I think that's how we exercise faith and trust Jesus. We're not be shallow with him, but we take him at his word. So first, don't be shallow with Jesus. Look at verse 43. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they also had gone to the festival. So, Jesus has left Samaria and gone to Galilee. Again, that's the part of Israel that Jesus grew up in. And verse 44 says, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, controversy surrounds that verse because it looks like John contradicted himself in just two sentences. Which is a hard thing to do for people. But it looks like he did that. Or that John's calling out Jesus for being wrong. He was welcome. But it's actually neither of those things. John's helping us interpret verse 45. Verse 44 interprets verse 45. The reception Jesus receives in Galilee isn't like the one he just received in Samaria. In verses 41 through 42, the Samaritan woman and the town believed in him because of what Jesus said and what they heard. His own country isn't interested in what he said. By saying that Jesus had previously testified that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown, uh, suggests that Jesus had already been rejected in that area before. And in fact, Matthew and Mark tell us of the time that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues of his own hometown, and people were offended by him. And this time they welcomed him. Why? Verse 45, because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. The Passover festival. They had also gone there. It's because of what they had seen. According to chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus did many signs or miracles in Jerusalem. And apparently these Galileans were there to see it. And now they're all pumped up that Jesus had gone down south and took on the religious elite. Making a name for himself. And now he's back home as a hero. Jesus sees right through it. 
if the people's hearts were in the right place, they would have shown honor to Jesus on the basis of his teaching and the testimony about him. I mean, from the beginning of John's gospel, that's what it's been all about. Testimony. It's the witness of John the Baptist, the testimony of Andrew and Nathaniel, the Samaritan woman and the town. Uh, John's writing this gospel as an eyewitness testimony. He saw it, we can't. But in order to have life in Jesus' name, which he says is the purpose of writing this, we must believe him. We have to believe the testimony. But obviously, sometimes words just aren't good enough for people like these Galileans. That's the problem John's pointing out in verse 44. Verse 45 is unbelief masked by a welcome on the basis of miracles seen. It's not a genuine faith. It's it's not a welcome based on Jesus' testimony, but on what they saw. Let me just show you this in the text. Because the crowd in 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 verses 43 through 45 is meant to be contrasted with the official that's coming up in verses 46 through 53. So here in verse 45, they welcome Jesus because what they had seen. And then after this official asked Jesus to heal his son, Jesus says in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And that's not an explanation. (laughs) It's a rebuke. Jesus isn't happy with this internal demand that people have to see in order to believe. But that official exhibits faith, and in verse 50, Jesus says, Go, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. Literally, it says, the man believed the word of Jesus. He had faith in the word, and his son was healed. Okay, so in between this town, this Samaritan town who believed what Jesus said, and this official who believed Jesus' word, is this welcome based on miracles seen. And Jesus isn't happy about it. Previously, his testimony wasn't good enough. It was just words. But having done many signs in Jerusalem, they welcomed him because they had seen it. Now, so I get it. If you've heard all that you, and you think, what's so bad about that? Right? Maybe you know yourself and you know that you would have been skeptical of Jesus' teaching, but quite impressed with his miracles. I mean, talk is cheap, right? Do something. Well, let's say our, our brother Tim over here, Sue Lyman. Uh, let's say that Tim says he can dunk a basketball and I say, yeah, right. I'll believe that when I see it. Well, I just called his character into question. And then let's say I just start making fun of him for it. Only for him to one day become an NBA superstar. And so when he comes back home, I'm nice to him and brag about how we go way back. <laughs> right, well, that, that's sort of what's happening here in the text. Which is why Jesus is obviously bothered in verse 48. It's not really about him. It's quite natural for people up north who were looked down upon by those in the south, who were really serious about their faith, who had the temple. It was quite natural for those people up north who didn't have all those things to be proud of the guy who went down south. And among the much more sophisticated and religious elite, makes a name for himself. I mean, that's their guy now. 
But Jesus is the same guy as he was before when they showed him no such honor. So that's what makes this kind of reception in verses in verse 45 a shallow reception. How much of it is about Jesus and how much of it is really about them? Is this a deep, genuine faith or a shallow one? Clearly, based on verse 48, Jesus isn't impressed. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Like someone who marries just for money. These people don't really welcome Jesus as the Savior of the world. I mean, look again at the Samaritan welcome back in verse 41. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves that this really is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior. The Galilean welcome doesn't point to real faith based on Jesus' word. It's a welcome based on miracles seen, and that's a problem. Because what happens if the scenery changes? They don't believe. When Jesus starts heading back towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, and he talks more about the cost of following him and does less miracles, people leave him. They abandon him. Now again, I don't want anyone to misunderstand. Seeing is not a bad thing. Seeing could be a gracious gift. But it's also good for us to recognize that most of the time, Jesus does miracles in order to confirm faith, not create it. Seeing God work, seeing the truth of Scripture confirmed, should make you more confident of what you already believe and make you want to hear more of it. But if we must see in order to believe, well, then that's more of a problem with us than it is with God. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus is gracious to reveal himself. But Thomas isn't commended for his doubts. It's those who don't see and believe that are commended. If we must see then it's because we understand ourselves to be the final judge on truth. At least for us. And from that position, we feel a sense of control. Or maybe a sense of safety. And maybe all that sounds good to you. And I would understand that. Especially if you've been hurt by people you trust. But have you ever thought about why it is that we're so bent on seeing before we believe? Or why it's so hard for you and me to live by faith and not by sight? The truth is, our eyes often deceive us and lead us astray. Have you ever regretted putting too much food on your plate? Well, that was your eyes deceiving you. You, know, you just kind of load it up And later, you're like, that was not a good idea. (laughs) And our eyes do that to us all the time. Telling us that the pleasures of this world are worth living for. 
making you wrongly confident in your interpretation of the world and even your relationship with God, all based on what you see. As if because your life is going so well, clearly you don't have anything to worry about with God. Or if I just had more of this pleasure, then I would be happy. But there's always a different angle, maybe multiple angles, including the angle of time and God's point of view, which you and I can't see. Words, however, can be precise and sufficient. That's why God speaks to his people and says that he desires worship that is in spirit and truth and even forbids the use of images in worship. Pictures are open to interpretation. It's not always clear what it is we're seeing. Now again, just to be clear, I'm not saying that you should believe everything that you hear. Or that you shouldn't apply reason to your faith. A a blind faith is just as foolish as believing anybody about everything. But depending on who's talking, it could be foolish to doubt what you hear. Skepticism can come from being rational, and that's good. But it also might come from being prideful, and that's not. Or maybe it comes from a place of fear. If God is speaking, we should take him at his word. And that's what the Bible is. It's a trustworthy word from God, completely sufficient, so that we can bank every part of our lives and eternity on. How do we know? Well, that's a good question you need to be able to answer if you're going to follow Jesus. So kids, teenagers, college students, I want you to especially pay attention here because this is especially important for you because much of your life is in front of you. You know, a lot of us here have made our big decisions in life and, and we're on the path that we've chosen to, to, some, to some degree and it's going to be the path we're going to continue on. Yes, we have daily struggles, daily temptations, but the course has sort of been set for our journey, and that's a great help to us. Still a danger that we can leave this course, but it's helpful. You, on the other hand, you're setting the course right now for the rest of your life. How can you be confident that it's worth banking this life and eternity on this book and then glorify God with your life by faith? You, again, want to know how to answer that question, and I think it might be a good start to attend Travis's equipping class next week or pick up a book on this subject. There's many of them. I might suggest F.F. Bruce's book called Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? But you could also just concentrate on the resurrection. If you apply the same standard as we do for determining the historical facts, then you can be confident that Jesus is the risen Son of God. And Jesus treated the Old Testament as God's Word. The guy who got up from the grave held this Bible in his hands and claimed that it was the Word of God. So if the resurrection really happened, that should give you some confidence. And the guys who were with Jesus before his death and after he rose again, well, they were willing to die for what they preached and what they wrote down in this Bible. 
So there's more reason to believe the Bible than to doubt it. It's just that we can't see it. And that can be a challenge for the human heart. We all know it's easier to live by sight than by faith. To live for what's right in front of us. To make decisions and act according to what we see and want. You know, living by how we feel is basically the same thing as living by sight. But that isn't the Christian life. We're called to live by faith for the glory of God. And the desires of our heart make that really hard. Because we're all about us and what God can do for us. So miracles look better than Jesus sounds. That's just how it works out for the people in these pages and for us. Miracles, or what we see God doing for us, looks better than Jesus sounds. In other words, a version of Jesus that works for me right now is more acceptable and believable to me than a version that comes with the cost of obedience and a future reward. Christian Smith has come up with a term to describe the common-held spiritual beliefs of modern people. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. It views God as, quote, something like a combination of a divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and has not become too personally involved in the process. In other words, our spirituality isn't really about God, but about us. The truth is, people today can be just like the crowds in this passage. We can be that way and follow Jesus simply because we can see how he might make our life better. So examine your own Christian life, your own faith. And ask yourself, when or where is Jesus really welcome in my life? And where is he not? Is your faith in God deep and strong when things look chaotic in the world? Are you faithful to obey when his word comes up against your desires? Or is it only when life is working for you that you're happy to serve God? In other words, does your faith really welcome Jesus based on the gospel message, or is it a more shallow welcome based on what you see? I think some professing Christians might be surprised by how shallow their relationship with Jesus really is, because while they claim to love Jesus, they really just love his gifts. And in the face of trials and suffering... They're caught off guard by how their love fades and how their commitment weakens, all because they don't see him working for them the way they thought he would. And then they see something in the world that looks better than Jesus, maybe a deep relationship with another person, and that becomes the priority. When it comes to the unbelieving heart, sin eventually looks better than obedience sounds. Apart from real faith in Jesus, sin looks better than obedience sounds to the unbelieving heart. But not to the eyes of faith. 
the eyes of faith see Jesus. He sees, it sees what he's done for us on the cross. They see the beauty of the truth of the gospel. And so the eyes of faith see the ugliness of sin and the delights of obedience. That person lives a life that truly welcomes Jesus to be a part of it, even at great cost to themselves. And the only way to do that is if the Bible is good enough for you. If you need more than Jesus' word, more than an eyewitness testimony, then you'll choose what you see in this life over what's promised in the next. Unlike Moses who chose to suffer with God's people rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of this world, making money will define Monday through Friday so that fun can define the weekend and the rest of life. But life is so much more than that. Life is so much more than our experiences right now and fun. By faith, we seek our joy in God by the way we work or how we spend our money. And every day becomes a day of worship, enjoying God, giving Him glory. We can even choose, like Jim Elliott, to risk our lives telling people about Jesus because we know we're going to lose everything in this world anyway. I mean, we're all going to die. And we can't take anything with us. But faith knows that there are rewards waiting for us in heaven. That's why Jim Elliot famously said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Again, if you're here and you're a student of any kind, I can tell you right now, if the only reason that you want God in your life is so that you can have a better life in this world, you're not going to make it. If the way you follow Jesus depends on how you feel, And what you see, you're not going to make it. Being a Christian is hard. But it's really good. We all suffer in this life. And if you follow Jesus, you'll suffer for being a Christian. But the promise of eternal life with God is worth it. He's God. I mean, really, this is a message for everyone. Not just students. Not just young people. All of us need to hear this. God is worth it. Nothing he created in this life that we can see is better or more satisfying than God. He's our creator. He's the one we're made for. Only he is truly satisfying. You need to make sure you get God. And the Bible is sufficient for that. If you want God, then you must live by faith and not by sight. Which means... You must fully trust Jesus by taking him at his word. And that brings us to the second way to glorify God with genuine faith. Take Jesus at his word. Look at verse 46. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. So Jesus is back in Cana where he performed his first miracle, changing water into wine. And evidently this royal official heard about that miracle and now his son is on his deathbed. Now as a royal official, he had access to the best physicians that money can buy. 
No doubt, they've already done everything they can, and nothing has worked. So when he hears that Jesus is back in town, he goes to Jesus and pleads with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. And given his desperate state, Jesus' response here is shocking, isn't it? Verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's pretty intense. I mean, clearly, it's not a compliment. It's a rebuke. We know that because of how the official responds in verse 49. He didn't hear Jesus explaining how all people are going to believe. Because he would have said, all right, follow me. I'll show you the way. Let's go. No, he took Jesus' response as a no. Because he continues to plead with Jesus. When Jesus says, you people, he's, he's talking about the unbelief in Galilee. The, the welcome he's just received. Remember how Jesus responded to the Pharisees who demanded a sign? Matthew 16, 4 says, A wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign. Why does Jesus say that? What's so wrong with seeing signs? Well, again, nothing's wrong with seeing signs. They can be good and helpful. God's not against them. He gives them. And praise God for that. What's wicked and adulterous is the demand for a sign. The demand is evil because it calls into question the character of Jesus. It calls into question the testimony about Jesus. And the reason why people are calling into question the testimony is because of its implications for them. If Jesus is the Son of God, he's to be obeyed, served, and worshipped. Their lives have to change. To glorify God, they're going to have to follow Jesus and listen to him. So life's no longer going to be about them alone. That's why Jesus says that the demand for a sign is adulterous. They don't really love God and want to serve his kingdom. It's about love for self. It's a wicked and adulterous generation who refuse to believe without a sign. So again, Jesus isn't against miracles. He does many of them. But clearly, God cares about what's going on in the heart. And a demand for a sign isn't good. In the next chapters, Jesus is going to confront religious opposition. And here's how he does it. Sneak preview. He points to words. He points to testimonies. Why didn't you believe John's testimony? You don't believe my testimony because you don't believe Moses. In chapter 5, he actually does point to the works that he's doing, that the Father has given him to accomplish. Because they testify about him. And yet he says, you don't believe even then. People saw and didn't believe because they didn't understand the scriptures. Words again. The whole Bible, all the Old Testament testifies to Jesus. And the miracles were confirming that testimony. So they didn't believe even after they saw. So it's clear Jesus doesn't commit himself to people who only respond to him with a shallow faith based on sight. Faith based on sight fails to honor God, since by that kind of faith, God serves us rather than the other way around. So, when this man asks for healing, Jesus doesn't initially give it to him. But that doesn't seem to shake this royal official. Look at verse 49. Sir, the official said to him, 
Come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that the boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now, it's worth noting that this royal official wasn't used to a poor Jew refusing him. They were known for their arrogant ways in which they chose to display their superiority. But before Jesus, this official puts down his pride. And without such humility, what would that have meant for his son? It's a good picture of how deadly pride can be. So don't mess with it. Pride's a hard thing to kill, but if you don't kill it, it will kill you. So in humility, he continues to plead with Jesus for healing. And that's an expression of faith. Right? Jesus just put him off. There's no sign at this point, in verse 48, that Jesus is going to heal his son. But he doesn't leave. He pleads with Jesus, come down before my son dies. And pleading in prayer like that is a great act of faith. Because if you don't believe Jesus can heal or will heal, you give up trying and you go do something else. The only reason you keep pleading is because you think it's possible that this guy's heart will change or that he will turn or that he's able to do it. Right? People pray, churches pray, because we believe God hears us and is willing to answer us based on the word about Christ. It's a good reminder, right? The gospel communicates God's heart to us, his faithfulness to us, and his power. That's, a, that's, that's the reason we keep on praying and don't give up, like this official. We don't have, know how much John is summarizing what took place here. But even as if, if it's as quick as it, we read here in the text, the official's faith is characterized by passion and persistence. He did the difficult task of leaving his son and making his way to Jesus. And then he pleads with Jesus until he answered. And we ought to pray like that. Because look at Jesus' answer. Go, your son will live. Once again, we see how quickly and willing Jesus is. To, to give, how, how, how willing Jesus is ready to give grace to the humble. Jesus doesn't answer the man's prayer the way he asked Jesus to. He doesn't go with the man. But it's because the man doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't need to come and touch his son. He simply needs to say the word. Which is a great reminder that whenever we pray, and we don't see how God could possibly answer this prayer, we should pray it anyway. He's God. He can do what we're unable to see. And so important to this particular passage is how the man responds in verse 50. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. He took Jesus at his word. Okay? His departure displays a level of faith in what Jesus says. Because otherwise, he doesn't go. I, I can tell you as a father that if you don't believe Jesus' word is true in that moment, you don't leave. There's no way a father trying to save his son leaves if he believes that Jesus has to be present physically to save. If he thinks Jesus has to touch him, he's begging and pleading until he comes. 
But Jesus says, go, your son will live. The man believes him and goes home. True faith is expressed in obeying God's commands and trusting in his promises. If you want to know what faith is, it is obeying God's commands and trusting in his promises. Is that what your faith looks like? Be encouraged. Because the Lord honors those who take him at his word. He loves to be trusted. It's glorifying to God when we humble ourselves to heal, believe, and obey without hesitation. Just like this man. Look again at verse 51. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now, John's trying to communicate something to us right here about saving faith. The man simply believed Jesus' word and his son was healed. That's a great picture of real saving faith in Jesus. All other religions aren't like that. They're all big, really big on seeing and doing. And the human heart naturally likes that. Because if our salvation depends on what we do, and our worship involves what we see, well, there's an element of safety, control, and even pride. But that kind of faith doesn't ultimately glorify, glorify God or do anything about our sin. Christianity alone promises salvation on the basis of faith in the one person who lived a perfect life for us. So real saving faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life is a matter of believing the good news about him. And if you believe, you obey. Which means even though we can't see Jesus and the moment that he bore the wrath of God for our sin and died and rose again, the moment that we trust him, God counts us righteous in his sight, forgiven and made new. And that journey towards faith becoming sight begins. And it looks something like this man's journey. I love this. He believes, but he doesn't yet see the fruit of his belief. Right? He, has to, he has to walk towards faith becoming sight. He has to do that in obedience. And we don't know how long his journey was or what kind of doubts and fears that must have just flooded his heart along the way. But what matters is not how much he doubted or feared as he kept on walking, but that he kept on walking. And along the way, his faith was strengthened by more good news. Right? He hasn't reached the point of sight, but his faith is deepened by confirmation in the power of Jesus' word. While he was still going down, his servant met him and tells him that his boy was alive. Now, if it was a shallow faith in Jesus as a miracle worker, just like the Galileans, then here's how I think he responds. He's better? Let's go see him. This is great. Right? It's all about the miracle. But this guy asks a question. Wait. When did he get better? Because it's not just about what Jesus could do for him, but who Jesus really was. And when he learns that his son got better at the very hour Jesus said the word, he believed. 
Now, I don't think that means he didn't believe before. He's already acting on faith. But faith can be strengthened and deepened. So just like the Samaritan town who said, we no longer believe you because of what you said, confessing belief. But now we've heard from ourselves from him and we believe. So faith is strengthened. You know, they believed and then they believed more. Same with this guy here. Or the father in Mark chapter 9 who cried, I believe, help my unbelief. So I don't know where you are today. If you're, if you're a new Christian, an older Christian, it doesn't matter. You may struggle with doubt from time to time. Maybe you have fears about the future. But a Christian can have a genuine faith and struggle with those things. And, and the object of their faith doesn't change. The object of their faith is, same, is the same one as the most mature Christian on the planet. So faith might be young and weak, but it can grow through a humble trust and obedience in God's word. This man left and trusted, and on the journey, his faith was strengthened by a confirmed word. And that's how our faith grows today. We read God's word, we trust it, and then we obey it. Listen, if if you don't act on faith by obeying God's word, your faith isn't going to take root in your life and help you grow in Christ. If you want faith to, to deepen in your life so that you can grow in Christ, you have to read God's word and do God's word. That's how it grows. You hear, trust, obey. And so on the journey, though you have doubts and fears, trials and suffering, the word of God will sustain you and it will prove to be trustworthy because God is faithful. And because he's faithful, you'll just keep moving by faith in what you can't see. And that entire journey will just drive you to read and pray even more. And that faith will deepen. And one day, Peter says that it will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Eventually, faith in God's word will become sight. We will see Jesus, and this entire world of sin, sickness, and death will be made new. So if you've been listening this morning, and you're convicted about your need for seeing, and the struggle you have with needing to feel like you're in control, or safe, and so you hang on to your skepticism and pride, This is how you grow in faith and how you will eventually see it become a reality. Humble yourself and then consistently read, hear, trust, and obey God's word and eventually you'll see his faithfulness just like this official. But know that that takes time. It's a journey. You've got to keep doing it. And so we need one another in the community of faith. I'm so thankful I'm not making this journey alone. But that along the way, I have brothers and sisters in this church who encourage me weekly, usually on Sunday nights, with stories of faithfulness from God. Faithfulness to His Word. And so that's what we must do so that we continue. We must point each other to the Word and live it out together because we're all trying to get home. We want to see Jesus. That's what this church is about. In many ways, we're just trying to let faith become sight. That's why our gatherings here are centered on the Word. 
why our mission is driven by the word, why our life together is shaped by the word. It's why our music here is driven not by the style of the song, but by its content. It's why we have so much scripture reading in our, ver- in our services. It's why the preaching is explaining and implying what God has said. And we understand that some of this will bore nominal Christians to death. But it's life to those who are being saved. God's word has always been the means for creating and sanctifying his people. There's no other way. It's by the word. It's the same with our witness, right? Good Christians can fall prey to thinking that it's, it's how I say it, it's what I do, it's the way, you know, I look, or churches, by the experience that they create. But listen, not even the miracles of Jesus guaranteed people would believe. First and foremost, the Spirit uses the testimony about Jesus. It's the gospel message. And yet, again, I don't want to discount our works and what people see. Because they do matter. 1 Peter 2.12 says that we should live such good lives among unbelievers so that even when they slander us as evildoers, they may observe our good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our works commend the gospel, drawing attention to the message. But it's the message that saves, not our works. It's the message that calls people to believe in Jesus, who alone is our righteousness. That's what John's doing with this passage and the rest of the gospel testimony. He's calling us to believe in the name of Jesus. And I think that's clear based on verse 44. So look there as we conclude. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. That's twice in this passage that John makes a reference to to Jesus' sign in Cana, which we read about back in chapter 2. So this is John's way of tying everything from chapter 2 through chapter 4 together as one section. We're supposed to read everything between the Cana together and ask, what do we learn about Jesus based on what happens between these two miracles? Well, Jesus is the one who can bring the blessings of God's promises and the new creation to God's people. And all who believe in the Son of Man will be saved and enjoy eternal life with the Father because he really is the Savior of the world. Through these two chapters, we better understand salvation and its extent. We better understand the nature of true worship and the nature of true faith. And there's a progression from one miracle to the next. Jesus isn't received by his own in Jerusalem. And a religious leader there has to seek answers under the cover of night. But then the Samaritans happily greet him during the day. The Jewish Galileans do welcome him, but it's not because of a deep, genuine faith. And on the other hand, a royal official, possibly even a Gentile, exhibits true faith. It's a progression from unbelief and darkness to light and faith. And it's where you least expect it. And the reason for that is so that everyone knows that no matter what kind of spiritual rebel you are or where you're from, if you put your faith in Jesus, then you will see the kingdom of God and enjoy eternal life with him. So glorify God by trusting in Christ for forgiveness and seek his glory in your obedience 
and do all of that by taking him at his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you that we can know you through what you have said and through what you have done. And we pray that your spirit would help us to believe and act on faith. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.